Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Alien vs. Predator Galaxy podcast. This is Aaron Percival, a.k.a. Corporal Hicks, and joining me, as always, is partner in crime. Adam Zeller, a.k.a. Ridgetop. And we are joined once again by a special guest star. We keep occasionally stealing him from Perfect Organism so he can come and talk books and comics with us. It's Mr. Christian Masco. Welcome back. Thank you so much, guys. And the title of this episode will no doubt have something to do with Inferno's Fall. But before we talk Inferno's Fall, so this year has seen the release of a trilogy of books from Titan, the first of which was Colony War, the second of which is Inferno's Fall, and the third, Enemy of My Enemy, I do not believe is out until early next year. We've obviously skipped Colony War if we're going straight to Inferno's Fall, and the reason for that is I fucking hate that book so much. Tell us how you really feel. That book <laughs> genuinely offends me on so many levels is one of the worst things I've ever read to do with Alien. And I decided I did not have the energy to do a podcast and edit a podcast and reread it for a start. You know, the once was enough as far as I'm concerned. So we've skipped straight to Inferno's because this one I do not hate. Still some discussions to be had around the things in it, but I do not hate it. So briefly, what did what did you guys think of Colony War? So I read it right before reading Inferno's Fall, because I had read Cold Forge and Into Crypt, and I knew this trilogy would be continuing on from that. You actually reread Cold Forge and Into Crypt? No, no, no. I'm just saying this uh, is... Okay. I had read those before, and this is the trilogy after that. I had known your opinion on Colony War for a while, but you know me, I have this morbid curiosity of the things that are highly disliked. I would just like to remind <laughs> our listeners and our viewers that Mr. Zeller here said, Forever not that bad. Not that bad. <laughs> and I feel like he still maintained that stance after we fucking reread no, no. the book. It was that bad, and it was worse than <laughs> I remember, but I still enjoyed it for being that. That was, my, that was my point. Okay. I don't know if you could say Colony War could be as redeemed because it's just kind of bad without being entertaining bad, you know? <laughs> I don't think I hated it as much as you did. Maybe that's because I'm not British and the book is very stereotypy when it comes to the British, to put it mildly. But I thought it was just kind of, it was between okay and bad. Like, <laughs> it's not my most hated alien story, I think. As what is? Yours. <sighs> that's a tough question. What is? Did you ever read Steel Egg? No. Okay. I still haven't finished all the DH press work. Colony War and Steel Egg are on the bottom. This is the worst alien things I've ever experienced. Oh, yeah? I own Steel Egg. I haven't read Steel Egg. <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't rush to it. I'll be honest with you. It's, <laughs> I had such high hopes for that one, despite the fact that it was by the same author of Forever Midnight. I, I was willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. And no, 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 no. So the fact that it follows... Spoilers for those who haven't read it for this and Inferno's Fall. It follows Chad McLaren, Ripley's husband, and the big twist is Amanda's still alive. They just faked her death and put her in cryosleep, and then we're not going to pick that up in Inferno's Fall at all. So that felt kind of tacked on with Amanda. And it's it's also like Inferno's Fall, and this is a problem I also have with Inferno's Fall. It's highly dependent on some of the older material with the latter Dark Horse stuff like Defiance and Resistance and Rescue. Those aren't even really accessible now. They were for ages, though. That's true. Yeah. That'll be all over the secondary market as well. Yeah. 
But anyway, to sum up Colony War for me, I thought the setting was interesting. I thought the journalist angle was kind of interesting. So I didn't hate everything about it. I thought the politics of it were kind of interesting, like intentionally infecting the colony so you can claim ownership of it, which that is kind of weird too, I guess. But like, I was very mixed about it. I wasn't intense hatred like you were, Aaron, but I was like, yeah, that just was pretty bad. What about you, Christian? I read it twice and I've listened to the audiobook twice as well. Why would you do that? <laughs> well, my friend Shiromi did the narration. So that was that was fun. I prep for that episode. Okay. Oh yeah. I like to have a book read to me, quite honestly. And she does a really good job with them. She also had done Into Charybdis, so there was a nice continuity with that. So for, for reference here, hang on, sorry. Christian on the Perfect Organism podcast interviewed the narrator of the audio books, who is Shiromi. Yeah. So she provided continuity where the author did not. I have trouble sometimes believing that the guy who wrote the book actually reread Into Charybdis because he makes some strange, like Cheyenne and her sister Cher should be from Texas because it's very well established into Decribus that they are Texans. He moves them to Oregon for some reason. I don't know why. The jokiness, the the broad characterization, it felt more like a Joss Whedon novel. So it's sort of the, you know, the alien resurrection in novel form for me. It was very, it was unfortunate. And especially coming after into Charybdis, following directly on from there. I don't know. I don't hate it, but the things that I like about it are few and far between. That is very generous from these both, in my opinion. <laughs> did you ever do a written review of that, yes, Aaron? I did. I haven't got around to a written review of Infernos yet. I've started one, but goddamn, I'm so busy at the minute. But I haven't finished it. But yeah, I absolutely fucking ripped it apart in a written interview, uh, written review. I wrote the author, actually, asking about that whole Amanda Ripley isn't really dead business. Because I was pointing out in Aliens Special Edition, when we see her photo, that establishes her age, it establishes her death. You know, what's going on with that? And he wrote back and said, oh, well, don't believe everything the company tells you as though the deleted scene from aliens was somehow the company having some sort of huge conspiracy to hide the fact from Ellen Ripley that her daughter not only was still alive, but actually was young and spry. So <laughs> you'll notice there's actually no description of how old Chad is or appears to be. Yeah, He should be an old man. There's a famous photo of Sigourney Weaver's parents visiting the set of Alien. And so her mom looks like Amanda Ripley, as we saw her in the special edition of Aliens. And so therefore, that's what Chad McLaren really ought to look like. If you, if you have that mental image, then you try to have him rappelling down the sides of, of colonies and fighting aliens. It just falls apart. Because are these supposed to still be before Aliens or, or post-Alien? No, these are, these are almost a decade after Aliens. Right. Following this continuity. Because I think it's either 84 or 85. That's not a decade. Nonetheless, Charybdis <laughs> as well, right? Like how yeah. far after into Charybdis is Colony War? Like just a few years? Within a year, I thought. I don't yeah, know why. It was, it was very close by. Okay. So they're like near post Alien 3 then. Man, I hate the time. I hate the timeline stuff. It's, it's one of the details I do not like about trying to keep in my mind about books and law is, is where this fits in. Well, that's so funny, though, because you're the one that wants everything connected. I, I like these little islands so that if you don't like one, you just don't go there. Yeah, I'm, with, I'm right. with you on that one, Christian. Well, I, th I think you can do both, right? So you have standalone alien books like Alien Echo, right? It just stands on its own, even though it might be referenced a little bit later. It's its own thing. It is. As well as Phalanx, I think, is the best example of this, even though that would get a mini sequel sequel in AVP Ultimate Prey. But then you have books like we have with this ongoing Cold Forge series now, where you're like five, six books in, 
and it's it's harder for new readers. I mean, it is good for fans because we do like seeing that stuff interconnected, but it's harder for new readers to just jump in being like, oh, I watched an alien movie and maybe some of the sequels and I want to check out this book. You know, if they're in and it's talking about Davis as a dog and it's talking about Zula Hendricks, they're not going to know what's going on. They're going to be totally lost, I think. Yeah, that book requires a fairly large knowledge of of different parts of alien lore just to access it, only to have it turn around and not not respect those sources. You have to know the whole backstory from the Dark Horse comics of those characters. You have to know the special edition of Aliens and how Amanda Ripley ends up in the video game and keep track of all of that timeline only to have the book then, more often than not, play it for laughs. Turn the android who wants to be human into a dog. It just, yeah. I don't know. Mm. There's much wrong with the book, let's be honest. But let's fucking move on from that. Otherwise, we will waste an hour. Because this one's good. (laughs) This one is good. So I know I asked about if people wanted us to do a synopsis, but because of scheduling the difficulties with this episode, nothing was prepared. So what we're going to do, I like Adam laughing there. What we'll do is we'll just read the back of the book because I used to do that and I, and I stopped. I thought we'd do the drunk history version. <laughs> well, I'm not really in the mood for beer right now. So you'll, you'll, you'll see me sipping away at drinks and stuff. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still on the back end of an illness, of flu, and I'm fairly sure I might have caught COVID. So um, fun times for Aaron. He's loving it. <laughs> Right, so Inferno's Fault, part two of a trilogy written by uh, Philippa Ballantyne with a story by a name that we should, anybody listening to this, anybody engrossed in the fandom will probably recognize, and uh, that is Clara Feifei. And that isn't actually her real name. I cannot remember how to pronounce her actual real name. Do you, Christian? Oh, don't put me on the spot. It's Charaja. Charia, is it? Charia, that's it, yes. She, she mentioned it on the other episodes. So um, Clara, formerly of the Mother blog, Studio Utani, got a, a story credit for this one. So part two of a trilogy, following on from Colony War. As war rages amongst the colonies, a huge ship appears over the UPP mining planet Shanmen, unleashing a black rain of death that yields hideous transformations. Monstrous creatures swarm the colony, and rescue is too far away to arrive in time. The survivors are forced to seek shelter in the labyrinth of tunnels deep beneath the surface. Already the grave to so many, these shafts may become the final resting place for all who remain. Hope arrives in the form of the vessel Righteous Fury. It carries the Jackals, an elite mix of colonial marines led by Zula Hendricks. Faced with a horde of grotesque mutations, the Jackals seek to rescue the few survivors from the depths of the planet. But have they arrived too late? No, the answer is no. (laughs) So quick sort of early summary then. So we know where we stand on the book. Kristen, you lead us off. Of what I think of it? Yeah, just a, just a brief top-down view of, of how you feel about the book, and then we'll get into specifics. Okay. I feel like this was a really nice return to the working class. They're not truckers in space, they're miners on a planet, but you get that sense of the exploitation in this universe that's inherent to the alien universe, but with a new twist. We're in UPP space, and so this is the first time we're really seeing that get fleshed out. There are a lot of characters and the the way that they're connected to each other might take a few minutes to figure out. But then I felt that was one of the real strengths was getting to understand who the knot is, who these people are, their weaknesses and their strengths and all those sorts of things. And then when Righteous Fury comes in and we have Zula Hendricks, it actually felt good to me. It was the, the thing I was the most nervous about with this book because it's, again, that tie-in to things, old Dark Horse comics, previous Titan novels, things like that. But I feel like they did that really, really well. So I was actually very satisfied with this book. Mr. Zala? So I thought it was pretty good. 
I read and listened to it because I did it in the middle of a vacation in the woods. Did you do the weird thing? I did a little bit. I put the audible narration on. Usually I do it like one and a quarter speed, sometimes one and a half speed if I'm feeling quite focused. But I listened to the audiobook while I was driving on this road trip. And then once I was at the cabin, I read the book and I thought it was a really good book. I enjoyed the setting. I had some issues with it. I'm going to guess you're going to go with an eight, Aaron. Because for me, it was probably about a solid seven. Like it was good. I think it was well done. I think the author went into a number of things and described them really well. There were some cool callbacks. Characters were interesting and likable. And I did really like the setting. I love the underground mine on another planet setting. It's something we've seen in Alien a bit before, right? In the one short or as well as uh, Alien Descent had that as well as Out of the Shadows had that setting. So I think there's there's some cool stuff that can be done with that setting. And it is done in this book in terms of some of the ruins they explore later in the book. But this was just kind of a journey of survival where this disaster happens in the beginning of the book. And you start off with a really big group of survivors. And by the end of the book, you got a couple people and that's it. But overall, I thought it was a good read. I thought it was well done. It is very much in line with the, the feel of the alien prequels. There's no xenomorphs proper in this book, even though they are referred to in terms of like prior encounters and stuff. So it's cool to see the neomorphs get more of a spotlight and to see them, you have the DNA reflex with the neomorphs as well. So overall, I would say I was I was pretty positive about the book. You know, I don't know if I'd, I'd say I loved it, but I'd say it's, it's pretty good. Like if you're an alien fan, if you're familiar with the stuff in the RPG, if you've read the prior novels, it's definitely better than Colony War. I mean, for sure. I think it's unnecessary. I know it's book two in a trilogy, but I think it's unnecessary to read Colony War to even really get this. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the things with May and Zula a little bit, but I suppose but it sort of still builds, it gives you that information in the book anyway. Yeah. So I liked it. It was good. I definitely recommend it as a read to any alien fan if you're looking for a new alien book to read. Even if they don't like prequels. Well, I mean, I don't like prequels. So. I know. That, that's why I'm asking. That's why I'm asking. And you. I still enjoyed it. So. I mean, there's things about the prequels I like, so I guess it depends on how intense your dislike of the prequels are. (laughs) But no, I think it's still, it has the feel of Alien, even without the Xenomorphs proper. We get to see these workers on on another planet. We get to see their tale of survival, and we get to see the DNA reflex in action and these very Xenomorph-esque creatures. You know, the the Neomorphs are still Xenomorph. That, well, they're referred to as Xenomorphs in this, which was also a little confusing, but I definitely recommend it. So I wouldn't go an eight. I would say a seven, but I think it is a genuinely solid alien novel that is a return to form, which I'm very thankful for. The thing the thing that gets me with this book is I believe it to be some of the strongest character and world building work that Titan has done. I think a lot of that stuff in here is just purely fantastic i struggle with how the creature stuff is handled and not because it's no aliens i think there is plenty of room in the alien franchise for the other alien related creatures my issue with this is more in terms of i don't i don't want to say i don't like it it's more i'm still rather confused by the way the goo and the mutations and stuff like that is handled because it feels like it took a step back from the consistency that it seemed to be taking with the way Alex White was taking Progerius Playpotents and stuff like that. With this one, it went back into a bit of do everything that required a bit of fan gymnastics in my head to make work. And then I'd get to a new bit and go, wait, okay, that doesn't quite fit. 
So that's where I'm conflicted in this book. Like plot, character, world building, all that is brilliant. Honestly, some of the best Titans done. But the creature aspect of it is where I struggled because it just kind of pulled me back a little bit and made me have to do this gymnastics in my head to reconcile it and be okay with it. It didn't make me hate it, but yeah, it it caused me to take a step back. So seven out of 10 for me. Solid seven, as they say. How about you, Christian? I'm going to go with an eight which is probably my first score. Or did I score the, the Alien 3 script book? I can't I remember, yeah. Oh, wow. It was 10 months ago. Right. In a minute, though, Aaron, I want to push back a little bit on that because, well, no, let's let's talk about those those different variations of Alien in a minute, but let's hear Adam's score first. Oh, I, w- I said seven. So did you? Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, I'll pull you guys up a little bit. But the the black goo implications that you mentioned, Aaron, I'm sure we'll get into that. And uh, should we that just is... talk that now? Should we just go black goo and creatures now? Sure. So the black goo has never made sense. I mean, come on. So <laughs> we see this is a deployment over a city, New Luhansk. This is something that Colony War kind of alluded to a little bit. Yeah, it was very in the background of Colony yeah. War. It had said there are these mysterious bombings of these frontier colonies with the black goo. And we see that happen in this book. It's the premise of the book, essentially, where a juggernaut ship arrives over the city and just bombs it, as we see in the flashback sequence of Covenant. Now, in that flashback sequence of Covenant, we essentially just see these black growths kind of spurt out of the engineers as they ride on the ground. And then we see their corpses later, but there's no indication that neomorphs came out of them. And it's another thing that's interesting in Prometheus, the hologram playback of the engineers are clearly running from something. What is that thing? Are there neomorphic type creatures chasing them? Or are they just kind of Fifield-esque infected engineers? killing each other. So there, there is a lot of mystery and a lot of like, well, this, what is this actually doing kind of thing here? But as far as I know, there was no indication of it just turns you into a neomorph if it touches you via like aerosol deployment like that. I mean, you do have the kind of alternate Weta version of Fifield where he was less of a zombie and more of like a, a creature like that. Just to point out again, you know, this series of, well, the point out for the first time in this episode, sorry, should I say, this trilogy is very specifically designed to tie into the role-playing game as well. Yeah. yeah. So a, a black goo bomb happens in the second scenario, the second cinematic scenario, and the RPG also leans more into the wetter interpretation of the Firefield monster as well. The abomination, I think they call it in the RPG. So yeah, just putting that out there. Just putting that out there. I do agree with you, Aaron, that in Cold Forge and into Cryptus, Alex White did kind of make it interesting in a sense that it was like this very chaotic biological agent that could be programmed. And that's how Blue was able to I guess, transcend her ailments was by programming this to do a very specific thing so that she could maintain her sentience. So that was kind of an, an interesting prospect of that. Now, more recently, the Black Goo is appearing again in the video game Aliens Fireteam Elite. And there was kind of a... There, well, there's a few nods to Aliens Fireteam Elite in this book. Mm-hmm. I think the entire Labyrinth stuff, the city they find underground. I think uh, that entire thing, I'm just like, right, we're pulling Fireteam in. Oh, yeah. That's not what I was making the connection with. Because, I mean, we've had Engineer Runes before Fireteam Elite. Yes. Yes, we have. But this is the first time that we've pulled them into... Like, so much of this book pulls influence from Fireteam Elite. So when it got to the underground stuff, I was imagining the Fireteam Elite levels. Yeah. That's fair. The specific name drop of weapons from Fireteam Elite, I think, is yeah. more plasma. Over. Right <laughs> yeah. What? I, so also at the ending, this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but the, with the um, the Righteous Fury International Group, 
so like international military task force that's on the ship that's like like you say Aaron putting out fires in different colonies when it comes to outbreaks it seemed at the end they were teasing the formation of the United America's colonial marines because as we saw in colony war the USCM was very corrupt and it has essentially become more like a PMC I thought they kind of took that a little a little far honestly I know you had like the rogue groups like we saw in Indicribdis but I was like really they're like mercenaries now but again back to the black goo yes in this one it just turned everything it touches into neomorphs pretty much which i always took from covenant the neomorphs were a very specific thing that david kind of developed when he was tinkering with it because they had these fungal notes and you had to breathe them in or they would go in through another orifice or whatever so i never got the impression that they would just come of any old outbreak i always took it like this is something david developed it was part of his experimentation that ultimately led to his xenomorph so david's lab gives tantalizing hints, but no answers of what did he catch in the wild and dissect versus what did he create? And if it's stuff that he created, then what was he using if the initial bomb blast had had wiped everything out? Covenant to me is so many missed opportunities. I just, I can't... Ah. In some ways, this book feels like a better version of Covenant because what I would love is for the, the bomb to drop and then everything turns into these neomorphic creatures and you have a whole planet just writhing with xenomorphic life. That'd be really cool. So this book gives me something that that movie really didn't. That movie held the, the promise of that and then it's like, nope, everything died. All I have are my experiments and I'm going to make one or two of you into these things. But if we accept that in this version, if the black goo bomb is dropped, you're going to turn into a neomorphic version of whatever life form you currently are, I think it's pretty damn consistent after that point. Humans turn into the more, more established neomorph and everything else takes on other aspects. Did you see something that was a further contradiction though, Aaron? So I sort of was in the same vein as Adam in that when stuff started dropping and things turned into neomorphs, I was like, wait a minute it's not how it worked in the flashback but then i sort of did some mental gymnastics of being yeah well we saw lots of not quite neomorphs in david's labs you know neomorphic but not quite how you know we saw them and then of course david's dialogue about um everything was either killed or mutated and then the you know the mutation went off and did the rampage and i was like oh, okay all right i'll work with that and then he, towards the end of the book as well, it's very much hinting at the fact that it's David responsible for this campaign. I mean, that, that personally, that was my takeaway from it, was that it was hinting that David was the one responsible for all the bombings because it was they were saying that it was synthetics piloting, piloting the, the juggernauts. So I was like, okay, that makes even more sense because perhaps it's a particular variant that David's programmed you know, to go specifically into the Neomorphs. But then throughout the book, and I don't, I tried to pay attention to this on my reread. From my initial read through, I had a specific impression that also went towards this, wait a minute, kind of thing. I tried to keep a lookout for where it came from when I went through it again, and I still don't remember if I figured out where it came from. But I got this, I got this impression that we then started to get into a more, oh, now I remember where it came from. It was when, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you my impression first. That it leaned away from the Neomorphs into a fire and stone type situation where everything turned into alien type things. So I believe it was when the first dropships coming down and they're being attacked. So it's all that sequence. And I, I 
I feel bad because I should have gone back and checked for a third time. But yeah, in my memory of it, it is them treating them as obsidian armor was the way I remember it being described. So it, leaning away from this Neomorph type impression to this fire and stone type thing where the good then turned them into alien-esque things rather than Neomorph-esque things. And, you know, that, that was something that was even further amplified when we get the Xeno Shark attacking the Jackals and, you know, and May steps in. And that was a very deliberately a Xeno Shark as we, you know, got in fire and stone. And then, of course, the Black Goo as well that they find within the Engineer Temple turns the engineers that they find down there into aliens. And I'm just like, it feels like we've got the goo doing three different things throughout. Again, I wish I'd have gone back and checked just to be accurate again, because I know I paid attention to it as I was going through it, because it it was one of those things that had taken me out of it a little bit. But did any of you guys pick up on that? Well, the problem is everything everything that happens in the book, even if it isn't consistent with itself, and, and you're pointing out things I hadn't quite noticed, you can still go back to one or the other of the prequel films and say, okay, that's kind of what happened there. And so therefore we can justify Black Goo can do this. Why it does it, I don't know. That's what I don't like because like Adam fucking hates the Black Goo for its do anything <laughs> thing. Now... I don't mind the idea of the Black Goo as um, a story tool that will do what they need them to do. I'm used I'm used to the Royal Jelly. But we had been getting into a consistent sort of direction of, yes, it makes alien-like things. And I was fine with that because, again, Covenant had seemed to imply that the Neomorph was a very specific direction. Now... This is also another thing where I'm kind of like, is this part two syndrome? Because it's been hinted out on social media by Clara that there's more to it than what's in the book. So on the one hand, it's kind of unfair to judge half part of a story. On the other hand, it's like, why didn't we try and put a bit more of that in there so it wasn't an issue for me as we were going along? So that's that's kind of where I get a little uh, about the book. I don't hate it, but I'm also kind of like, I'm willing to wait for the third part to see if it's addressed in there to see if it reconciles it. That makes me wonder because like you were saying, you didn't think Colony War was necessary reading for this. So is Enemy of My Enemy going to be more closely tied to this then but yeah as far as the black goo goes i mean we've also had the recent portrayal in um, aliens fireteam elite where it turns xenomorphs i did not like that really did not like since this book is tied into that it's like wait what like so yeah i've i've always kind of despised the whole black goo just does everything and anything and it seems like that is uh just continuing unfortunately It was really my only issue with the book. I'll be honest. It was it was the handling of the cre- the handling of the goo, and it just seeming to do a lot of different things. And because that that is generally my only real issue, my main issue with the goo and the prequels. You know, I don't like the inconsistency. Well, as far as the book telling its own story, you know the the kids that got stuck in that cave in Thailand. Yeah, it's like a soccer team or something, and they had to they had mm-hmm. to rescue them. It's almost like you take that story and cross it with Sharknado. Like not only you, like, while you try to rescue those kids, it's raining sharks because every time the jackals would try to go and land on the planet, something would go wrong. And actually that brings up one thing beyond any issues with black goo, this idea that an AI in the alien universe or not an AI, a, a robot can transfer their consciousness or whatever you want to call it remotely. I don't know where this started. I think it may have actually go the whole way back to alien defiance. Because that was something David did, right? Davis. Davis. Yeah. Yeah, Davis had a chip in his head that they rescue, they take out at the end of the whole story. And after that point, Davis can go in a computer, Davis can go in a weapon, whatever. Bishop could not link his brain and go up to the Sulaco and pilot a ship down. That's not how that works. 
We've seen this play out in um, Out of the Shadows. Suddenly, Ash is on board the the Narcissus. It's a, it's a creeping of what androids can do. And now it's established in so many different versions that I can't, I guess, argue with it. But I really, nothing ruins the tension of a moment by saying, oh, but don't worry, I'll be okay because I can go back up and get in a different body. And it sort of flies, it flies in the face of Bishop wanting not to be restored. In Alien 3, yes. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I guess May is like, May is the main android. Well, there's quite a few android characters in this book, honestly. But two, really. Well, no, three because oh, four because of the uh, the ship. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. There's a fair few. Yeah. So on this ship, this um, military group ship, we have the android May, who was created by Davis, who sacrificed himself at the end of Colony War. Needlessly. Needlessly. <laughs> yeah, but because he didn't want her to be alone. But anyway, she's meant to kind of be. It's like, was there a romantic thing going on with? Davis and Zula because she's meant to kind of be a child of the two. Like Zula even calls her her daughter in this one. Just like Davis, she's very much trying to become human. Davis has left her subroutine to kind of like guide her through her journey and trying to relate more to humans, even though she has like a combat synthetic body. She doesn't have like a realistic Android body. And she has tension with the other AIs on the ship, including the, the main mother computer on the ship, who prevents her from the safeguard of being able to re-upload her consciousness if she loses her body. And she's like, well, you want to be more like a human. So here you go. If you die, you die. Which I was like, really? Would the mother of the computer have like an attitude like that? Like, I don't know. There was some really cool stuff done with androids in this book, but there was also some kind of eyebrow raising stuff done. I totally see where you're coming from, though, Christian, because it, it is really not kind of how the, the films had, had portrayed the way it worked. But I guess I never really took an issue with it in Out of Shadows because I always liked that part of Out of the Shadows. And it's never really been something I've considered since because of the prevalence of it within the expanded universe of late. But yeah, you're totally right. It does remove some of the peril. It removes some of the tension of their fates. But I really like May. Oh, yeah. I hate how Davis was treated in Colony War, but that it resulted in May in this book is one of the, you know, the beacons of light from it. And I fucking love her in this book. I really, it's something I liked in Resurrection. It's something I, I quite liked about, I feel like the, the expanded universe has become a bit more fascinated with it. And it's this topic of who are you, you know, self-identity. And yeah, I always loved it about Ripley, but especially the way it's gone with with some of the later characters, you know, like Blue and and, and May, and the inclusion of more trans characters in in some of the um, later stuff. Mm-hmm. And it very much feels like more of a. It does feel like more of a trans al- allegory than anything, because you know they talk about May getting the correct body for you know for her personality and stuff like that. But it's always been something I've been fascinated with because it's not you know the, this question of who am I, what do I want to do, where do I fit into the world? You know, it, it's it's not just a trans thing. You know, it can apply to everybody. And it's one of those things I you know I find myself finding really. I identify a lot with it, with what the franchise has been doing lately. You know, this question of, you know, in professional and personal life and stuff like that of, you know, is is this who I want to be? Um, Is this the type of person, you know, is this where I want to be in the world? And I really, really like it. And I really like that the expanded universe has become so fascinated with those kind of questions lately. And that May sort of embodies that within Inferno's fall. I just find it so fascinating and so identifiable in that in that regards. 
yeah, I thought she was a really strong character and the whole, her journey of kind of discovering who she wants to be, I thought was really well done. Do you guys pick up that um, the characters from Alien Prototype that Zula Hendricks was training are, are still in this book? They, they stuck with her. Yeah, I like that. Oh, that's, I, yeah. It's been a while since I've read Prototype. <laughs> in Integra 3, that was a Hive Wars reference, right, Aaron? Yes, the, the, oh. the figures that then got into the RPG. Right. Say again? There was a Kenner line called Hive Wars back in the 90s. Oh, okay. And that's where the Integer 3 combat synthetics were originally from. I didn't know they were incorporated in the RPG as well, but yeah, I thought yeah. that was a really cool inclusion, as well as they had the EVAC fighters too, right? Mm-hmm. Again, RPGs brought those in recently, so it's the RPGs being used as kind of a, a lore guide, mm-hmm. which I like. I'm perfectly fine with that. Those RPGs are fucking brilliant for that kind of stuff. The whole border bomber thing actually comes from that, of Andrew Gasco was trying to marry the Aliens continuity with the, the Steve Perry novels. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with Wilkes and Hicks, uh, Wilkes and Billy, excuse me. And so in those, uh, Asheron or Acheron becomes Rim. And so he had, Acheron gets gets destroyed and Rim gets destroyed in the same continuity. And so that's where the border bombing rumor starts. And then after that, you have Destroyer of Worlds having a real border bombing happening. And these novels have, have continued from there. But it's kind of fun to see the puzzle of making these things fit, creating new story ideas, and then to have it play out nicely in this book. It's a double-edged sword of this massive continuity, you know, lots of references references to each other but i love it you know while i might not want to work out the specifics of what month these things takes place you know just this general feeling of everything matter you know things having consequences elsewhere you know when when intercaribdis ended with this fucking declaration of war i was like holy shit that might make things interesting and you know i, I like that it's it's become a thing i like that titan's doing it i like that the rpg's doing it and unlike colony war where it felt like things were missing you know i never felt like things were missing in infernos you know it was all quite addressed quite nicely in terms of you know the wider lore and the wider continuity i agree with you there but in terms of me though to go back to characters mm-hmm. love her but are we going too far with the pinocchio thing huh. have we done this too often that's an interesting question i mean it's also very kind of blade runner-esque right so that fits but it's it's that's a question true. of it's a question of overuse she makes me think of data from next generation that sort yeah. of i want to be human my creator made me in a certain way i mean it's it's an interesting exploration and i think it's right at home in in the alien universe but isn't it a repeat of kind of like the way davis is go was going well that was the intention that davis had in making her was a continuation of an android wanting that and that's what kind of distinguishes may from the other synthetic characters we see in this book but it's just again a repeat of that angle i'd though. say she feels like her own compared to davis and yeah it is a repeat of that angle but she's she's far less mature than davis was at the point that he died in terms of the exploration of being human so it was really interesting to have her see this desire but coming from a place of she was still very much in a synthetic mindset, like much earlier on than we saw with Davis in terms of his journey to becoming more like a human. I also wanted to touch on, I would say the main character of this book is Toru. I mean, it's a big ensemble cast in this book. Uh, and it follows this family group that refers to themselves as the Knot that are working for this conglomerate, the Juto Combine, they're called, right? Which is a brilliant, I didn't realize until I listened to your podcast with, with Clara, Christian, mostly because I've only read that book once and I have no desire to go back to it. But that was a nice continuity shout out to um, Alien Covenant Origins. Which I like better than the film. Oh, oh. oh yeah. I still oh, haven't yeah. read it, so I can't speak to it. But. <laughs> yes, I'd say that Toru is the, is the main character. 
Maybe we need to do a review of Origins now, Aaron, because we never did a review podcast on that. A little after the fact, but that's never stopped us before, right? <laughs> anyway, so Toru, main character of this book. She is in a, if not romantic relationship, an ongoing sexual relationship with a synthetic partner, Carter, who's also a worker in this family group. And I thought that was interesting to finally kind of see explored a little bit because in Alien, like the comics, we had Newt and what was the name of her synthetic partner? Eula. Or Butler, depending. Oh, yeah. It changes between the um, Perry novels, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I don't think he or she knew that he was a synthetic at that point. In the comic, he didn't know what he was. In the novel, he does know, which is really oh, gross. Okay. okay. But in this one, I mean, it's, yeah, it's an ongoing relationship. She's worried about the stigma she's going to have about this from her fellow family members and workers. But you do see that it kind of goes beyond just him being a sex toy for her. Like they do genuinely care for each other, even though he's very much a logical synthetic. And again, it's worth mentioning that he was an ex-pleasure robot. Right. So that was his original purpose, but he... Well, it was a gag gift, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was a gag gift. It's really weird, though, if you think about it. Because these You're are talking sentient about a... beings, essentially. Yeah. And that's Sentient-y. always been an interesting thing in the alien universe as time goes on, like android rights and stuff like that. That question, Bishop prefers to be called an artificial person. So they have like... And, and, and then going forward to alien resurrection, like the... The autons. I guess. Yeah, exactly. So the synthetics just doing their own thing. So I feel like May was a really a shout out towards that. Well, she's on the continuity between like the, the line between Davis and Call. You know, how do we get from one to the other? I feel like May is a really good next step mm-hmm. of, you know, she's the first born technically. Even Call, she's like, look at me, I'm disgusting. Is like, is that something you would think an android, an alien would say? It's like, no, that is that is a self-aware sentient being yeah. who is an android. Like, so it's an interesting question. And to see that kind of romantic and sexual relationship explored a little bit between the main character and a, and a synthetic character, I thought that was interesting interesting to finally kind of dive into. But the the origins, like you were saying, Aaron, you know, she's a gag gift. Toru's sisters buy her this as a joke and then are somewhat offended that she's like, oh yeah, sure. I'll, I'll have a sex bot. But the more I think about that situation, the grosser I feel like it gets because you're buying a sentient person, giving it to somebody and then hoping they'll laugh or be disgusted. I don't know. There is that to consider. Yeah. Like she, and that's another thing with the androids. Like she owns this person. Yeah. But this person is self-aware. And it's the same question with Blade Runner with the replicants too. It's a whole other interesting topic, isn't it? And I know a lot of people kind of want Alien to get away from, you know, the Blade Runner angles. But I I like it when I'm reading these things and I am sort of asking myself, holy fuck, is this, is this right? You know, how would I feel in that situation? Because you know it's going to be a thing. Let's be honest. You know, there's already these fucking lifelike sex doll more so than, you know, just a, your normal little bits. As soon as synthetic life, as soon as androids are possible, there are going to be fucking sex ones. It's going to be a thing. And Alien's playing with it a lot more now as well, you know, in Destroyer. You know, there's there's the sex synth in that. And it, it does... There's a lot more depth to it than we'll ever fucking be able to go into it in, in this little nerdy podcast of a bunch of guys talking about the book. <laughs> but it's like later on towards the end of the book when she does something to him that she never, ever wanted to do, but needed to have the option to. And, you know, and it's to override any of his free will, you know. And it's at that point that it's then master and slave, you know, owner and property line that's crossed between these two people that are emotionally invested in each other. 
Well, at the same time, it makes the point that he's kind of programmed to mainly protect her. Is that his free will or is that his programming? And she's just changing his programming by using the control word. And later she's like, tell him I'm sorry that I had to do that. Because essentially the word is just used to prioritize him protecting her family over her as they're on the final stretch of, of their escape. Did it make you consider things as you were reading it? the right and the wrong of it all. Yeah. And that was an interesting question, which is why I I liked the relationship of Toru and Carter so much in Mm -hmm. this book. I will say though, I don't like that they killed off Toru. Like that was a ding against the book for me because I'm like, she's on the dropship. She's been so close to death so many times in the book of this, like let her get away. I, I thought she was dead like two or three times before we got towards the end of the book and she kept surviving. I was like, she's made it. She's made it. She's not going to die now. And then, yeah. She's standing next to a row of, of combat synths, and none of them can have that lightning fast reflex to, to sacrifice themselves. It, it does get a little contrived, doesn't it? You've got Colonial Marines and UPP Marines. Everyone there is primed to fight aliens, and everyone just stands there and watches. While she does this, I had a really hard time with yeah. that. Yeah. She was a really likable character, too. She, she was. was. a good protagonist, which is why at the end when she, like you were saying, Christian, it felt like she had to needlessly sacrifice herself as she was home free. It was just yeah. like, ah, oh, come on. Are we really doing this? It was a gut punch. And I like my harsh endings. I love the way Covenant ends. I love the way Alien 3 is... But that just felt a little... Like, I didn't hate it, but it did felt a little cheap. It was already harsh. They had lost, like, That's what I'm I'm saying. (laughs) I agree. You know, the the book was harsh, and the way they killed her, even I was a little, like... I don't hate it, but, yeah, that was a cheap shot. She deserved to survive towards the end of that. But, goddamn, I fucking love the knot. Yeah. They were brilliant. Even the characters that weren't in for long. Nathan. Was it Nathan? Mm-hmm. The, ne- yeah, the nephew? Who was it in the shell? Oh, shoot. She's one of my favorites. What the heck was her name? Because I thought that was really neat, too. The protective suit. Yeah, I, I had um, visions of those weird suits from Prometheus. You know, the, the really oh, yeah. awkward one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with that stuff. And her death was such a great way of, of oh, introducing yes. how the aliens had ramped up. Now they have wings. A flying one took her into the sky and just dropped her. Yep. Because it couldn't get through her suit. Yep. I thought that was brilliant, you know. But we've got to find a name. We don't deserve to not give her a name here. There was a large cast of characters in this book. A huge and cast. Sometimes of I had to go back like, wait, who is this again? And the fact that if, if they were all her daughters, it would have been easier. But it's like, okay, this is this is the wife of her daughter. This is her actual daughter. This is her... And they're not together. You know, this is a nephew. This is a something else. Pinar. 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 Yeah. Very cool character. I really liked that extended family kind of mm-hmm. way that they took the thing because it, it, I think that's something else that's very relevant at the minute is this cho- is this idea of chosen family. A lot of them were actual family too. Yeah, I, I know. But you, you then get this random assortment and you've got a, adoption mm-hmm. um, of, of adults. You know, she was an adult when she was adopted into the, um, the knot. Um, she, I can't remember her name. Is we should have wrote these down. The the survivor of the Australian War, right? And the two kids that she then, then adopted. her adopted children. Yeah, I yeah. tend to view that kind of stuff as chosen family, and I really find that fascinating. But the 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 point I was getting at, sorry, was more that every single one of their characters is goddamn well defined, stands apart from the others for a start, and that is a credit to Philippa's ability to write these characters. I said at the beginning, you know, that I think this is one of Titan's strongest character and world building books. And it was the way she handled the knot and and how everybody was so distinct, you know, with distinct voices and personalities and goals. Nathan was so 
even though he was a member of this family unit, he was entirely different from those guys in the way that he wanted to achieve what he was doing. You know, I, I guess really he was the enemy to to what Toru, you know, her approach would have been. And and despite that, I didn't I didn't dislike him. Toru is the main character with her own goals and her own mentality, and Nathan was going about it the opposite way. But he didn't paint him as a bad guy, and I really liked the way that that Philippa handled all those characters in this book it was seriously I, I still stand by you know some of titan's best character work yeah nathan's death was so surprising i figured he mm. was going to be a long-haul character nope <laughs> yeah. there were a few surprising deaths in this too like also the um because there's some tension between the knot once they've like sealed themselves in the mind to just survive against the swarm of neomorphs that have come from the city that's been bombed there is some tension between the security group which is led by like the sleazy corporate administrator guy and the knot. And they, they come to a point where they're like, well, we're going to be the first to evacuate after the uh, righteous fury shows up and they run out and they just die like instantly. There's not even like a focus on this guy who's been kind of made out to be the villain. Like let us see him suffer or whatever for him being like a sleaze bag. It's like, no, Oh no, they all just died. And I was like, Whoa, I expected him to kind of be the villain. It was kind of refreshing because he had kind of become like another one of these, like obviously just total sleazebag corporate guys that we had seen so much in Alien. So for him to just get off that quickly, I was kind of like, oh, okay, phew, we don't have to deal with like <laughs> him being the, the nuisance at their chances of survival this whole book. I absolutely expected him to be the one that snuck back in. Everyone else dies and then, and then he makes it back there and, and then compromises the whole team. But instead, you have these two nebulous kind of scientist characters who kind of take that role yeah. of, well, we're going to take samples and we're going to get too close to stuff. And I didn't expect that from them, honestly, because like the way it was describing them, once they get to the ruins and they're starting to like observe everything, it seemed like they were genuinely fascinated with things. But then it's like, oh, no, we're taking these samples. We've been instructed to take these samples and they just screw everything there. And I was like, <laughs> that came out of nowhere, too. I think that's tied into the wider world because mm. don't they mention it being like standard procedure to have these, you know, archaeologists yeah. on, on all the, you know, on all the mining sites. The RPG's hidden agenda, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I love I loved that facet of that game. At least at the very end, the, the final scientist, he didn't intentionally infect mm -hmm. himself or something. It was just a, it was a freak accident. Broken, hadn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What did you guys think about actually introducing live engineers at the end? I was mixed about that because the whole thing felt like a repeat of Prometheus. They wake up and it just attacks them. And I mean, it is a little different because it gets infected and it starts to mutate and it chases them. But it did felt it's, it's so weird because it seems like the creatives who work in the expanded universe are so either afraid or instructed not to mess with anything Ridley's done, regardless of the fact that he doesn't care what he messes with. So that's kind of a problem I've always had with the prequel elements is it feels like a lot of it's just show us what we saw in Prometheus and Covenant mm -hmm. and don't go into it anymore. Don't explore it anymore. Don't try and develop it anymore. It's just like, oh, here's this stuff. It's here. And the things that happen are kind of like repeats of the things that happened in Prometheus and Covenant. So the appearance of the engineers kind of felt a bit samey to the encounter that the Prometheus crew had in that film. Hmm. See, I, I see where you're coming from and I agree. You know, it, it is very, yes, I've experienced this already in the other things. But on the other hand, this book also felt very much like, a, right, these other things are playing with the engineers. These other things are playing with engineer ruins, you know, the game and, and the film and stuff. Let's bring it into the novel universe. Yeah. Now somebody else perhaps can go off and spin off from that and it not feel you know it, it's been established within the novels now you know they are there somebody else can go do something with it without having to make a big deal out of it 
which is where I'm kind of I'm interested in in that kind of angle. But I do see where Adams come from. You know, it, it is nothing particularly new in that regards. I will say though, I did really like how the engineer ruins were described. That had a bit of exploration in it, especially that the giant head was made of bone. Yes. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> kind of playing into the, the biomechanical aspect of it. Yeah. And it made sense. Like, it wasn't just like this was a hidden temple that they randomly stumbled upon. It was like, no, the Eiter, the thing they were mining, was part of why that engineer facility was there. So it yeah. made that feel not just coincidental that they that they stumbled upon this facility. But I liked how it was just all underground, deep in this mine. Like, that was kind of a distinguishing factor from... Fireteam Elite as well, Aaron. I know those those kind of go into the earth in the pathogen campaign, but mostly they were kind of on the surface. And in this, it was a really cool setting and how they kind of found their way out with the, um, was it like an underground river at the end or something? Yes. And then yeah. they run off and stuff like that. But before yeah. we go too far over that, Christian hasn't told us how he feels about the engineer yet. Oh, right. Go for it. Well, just that I almost feel like if someone had come to, to me and said, Christian, you have one chance to write an alien novel, there are a bunch of things I would want to fit in there. And Clara loves the engineers. And so I just kind of wonder, this could have been saved for a sequel. It could have been saved for somebody else. Do you, do you think it's kitchen sink? A little bit, a little bit. Okay. However, when you go back to into Charybdis, we're given this amazing engineer location that is it's devoid of engineers they're gone mm -hmm. we see we see all this cool stuff so that also has been done multiple times maybe it is time to finally show an engineer but i almost feel like if you're going to have engineers then you need to tone back some of the other creatures and give them more time because it's like this one chapter and then they're they're back out of the picture for the most part and then they're aliens functionally they are Something you guys said earlier, I think there are actual XX121 xenomorphs in this story, only in that the miners from the first shaft that collapses, you know, shadows, shadows of the teeth. That's and then when they go right. through, there's one point when, when Toru and the other survivors are way down in the mine where suddenly the architecture, it looks like a hive, like an, a mm -hmm. desiccated, abandoned hive where everything is sort of turning to dust. We don't, I don't think we see. Yeah, the Shadows of Teeth encounter that they had, it's always just kind of passed off as a hallucination because of like yeah. it's the mine or something, but they, they never continue what that was that the initial, because the book opens with this incident where yeah. there's this either collapse or explosion. And the, the miners that are rescued talk about that they had seen something, but we never really go into what it is they had seen because the neomorphs don't show up till later to the bombing. So yeah. You know, there, there, there were statues. I, I'm fairly sure it describes there being statues of the alien aliens yeah. down there. So, I mean, that's a possibility as well. Although I, I've got to say this because this is one of my pet peeves. I love when Wayland yutani report introduced this concept of XX121. You know, this idea of a catalog of xenomorphs being this generic term. I really wish this book would have gone with that. You know, with this idea of, of the mutations being obviously alien-like, but not the aliens that they're used to. And I would have loved to have seen some more designations sort of show up in this one. Especially where you have the android on board the ship besides May, I can't think of his name, and the ship's computer. They could have given a designation, which would have been nice. I'm completely in agreement with you. I really don't like, I know that as fans, we call them xenomorphs as a blanket term, but within the media, I wish there'd be more clarification because Gorman is clearly saying in Aliens that a xenomorph may be involved, meaning something extraterrestrial. That's that's all he means. He's, he's using a high-fluting word because he's a you know right, fresh out of, out of officer training. He's trying to sound 
smarter than he is, yeah. And if he were specifically saying, you know, these black Giger-esque creatures, then that, that would imply that the Colonial Marines knew way more about them. And mm-hmm. this ever-expanding universe of stories and comics and things is already encroaching on that. Too much for my liking, but that's all right. But XX121, I love it. Give me yep. more of those. Give me those yep. specifications. Yeah. I mean, even if it's just like 121A or 121B or something like that, you know, just variants of this very obviously related thing, you know, that's fine by me, but don't call him Zeno's all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I quite liked Intercaribdis taking a riff on it with the X-rays. You X-rays. know, I like that. Yeah. yeah. Just don't call them bugs. That's the other. <laughs> yeah, I've never liked that as well. I mean, it makes sense the military would call them that for sure. Yeah. And I, it's kind of a play on Starship Troopers maybe too, but. I still, I still disagree with all this Starship Troopers and Alien stuff. Jim Cameron was talking out his ass. <laughs> there was one thing I wanted to bring up, and I'm curious as to your thoughts about this. This was kind of another issue I had about the book. And we've kind of debated on this point a little bit too, Aaron, so I'll be curious as to your thoughts. Corporate dystopianism. Alien has always had a very certain level of corporate dystopianism, right? I wouldn't say... I mean, yes, the Alien series has a lot to say on corporatism, on capitalism, on its effects on societies. But I wouldn't say things are quite as bleakly dystopian as some other media like Elysium, like Blade Runner, like Cyberpunk. Alien doesn't take it that dark of a future. It is a dark future, and it does have a lot of corporate dystopian elements. But when the book kind of got into things like indentured servitude and they had electric fences to keep the workers in, it did kind of feel like it was pushing it more towards that Blade Runner Elysium territory of like, shit, like this is like really bleak here. And Alien, it always felt like it was kind of, it didn't really take it that far. It was more subtle. It was more kind of insidious rather than just blatant hyper exploitation. You've got to remember, though, this also pushes the UPP. So this isn't this isn't just Western capitalism. Western oh, that's true. Right. Gone, the UPP did own this facility. Yeah. They're supposed to be socialists. So why are they indentured? <laughs> well, it's, it's it's communism, isn't it? It's an exaggeration of the corrupt Russia. So the Juto Combine. I thought they were just contracted with the UPP, and the UPP was funding their facility. But Juto Combine, I thought, was still like a for-profit corporation. It's really nuanced, and I I don't completely understand. I was, as a fan of the UPP concept, I was really looking forward to this book to see it more fleshed out. And instead, we have all these tantalizing little details. It's a UPP planet that used to be a Wayland-Yutani planet because it's in the Wayland Isles, which is kind of odd. All the security officers are former UPP soldiers. One of the members of the Knot is former UPP. So there's a military presence there, but it's definitely a corporation that is active in the UPP. They're the ones that own the planet, are running the mining operation, and also own the Knot because they're indentured. That's how they got off of Earth. They had to sell themselves into servitude or whatever to get off of the planet. Hasn't that come up in some other books before too? Like they have these contracts where because of the cost of taking them to another planet and housing them at a colony, they are essentially, they are contracted for a certain amount of time where they have to work for this amount of time. Well, it's what Elon Musk keeps talking about with Mars. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You'll be there for the rest of your lives. Was that prototype? Was that a thing in prototype? Maybe. I could have sworn it was in another alien book. I don't know if it was Echo at all, maybe. I don't know. It makes sense in a way. It's also kind of fun, the whole thing of Australia having been having been Yeah, nuked. what happened to Australia? Like it was in one of uh, one of the Perry novels. Yeah, it was a random thing from one of the Perry books. Oh okay. Gaska Gaska did a thing within the RPG. And so then you have these two authors who are from Australia and New Zealand saying, Well, okay, you know, we're gonna take this and run with it. So I thought that was kind of cool. That was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Again, it's like I was saying, you know, the will building elements of this book were brilliant. 
one of them was, you know, fondly remembering Australia and I think it's Australia and specifically remembers the exact location where they shot Alien Covenant that the, those falls yes. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was kind of fun too. I liked that. The mention of Milford Sound. But, you know, there's so many little just details in this book that were brilliant. We mentioned earlier the the plasma rifles. You know, it was it was one of my critiques of of Colony War as well. You know, with Fireteam had Fireteam Elite had introduced like all these different manuf well, expanded on these manufacturers, should we say sorry. And you know, it's set on an English fucking three world war empire thing, but instead they're all using pulse rifles, you know, instead of the um Hyperdyne system stuff that was supposedly, you know, more three world war or Wayland kind of weaponry. So to actually see them dip into Fire Team Elite and take the UPP weaponry from that, I was like, yeah. It's three world empire, not three world war. <laughs> three WE. Three world <laughs> war is a comic. Yes. Yes, it is. With a comic. Great cover, bad story. Oh, well. I actually quite like it. Okay, so you put the aliens on leashes and then what? <laughs> okay, I don't like that. But in general, I actually quite like that. And there were nice little nods like Nathan buys a, a, a dipping bird to give yeah. to the to his nephew and niece. You know, like, oh, I like that. And I'm sure there's a lot of deep cut stuff. There, there was little things as well, you know, like the PDTs. The idea that there was this cheaper brand of PDT. You know, this was something yep. I was actually playing with in my own. The official media keeps pipping me with little elements <laughs> that I'm I'm trying to play within my own fan productions, but I'm so slow doing everything else. But yeah, that idea was something I was like, yeah, I like that. It only kicks on when you're dead. <laughs> yeah. Lots of different little elements like that are brilliant. Or extrapolating on the the good boys from yes. Charybdis to make the big boys. Yeah. The mining versions of them. Yeah, that was yep, I can totally see well. it. And the pups as well. You know, there was mm -hmm. a lot of pulling from various different areas. And that is exactly the kind of thing I like to see mm -hmm. in, in my expanded uh, universe kind of stuff. You know, it all contributes towards that feeling of a big connected universe. So, yeah, very big on the world building in this. Also, we haven't gone over this yet. The cover art oh, is, yeah. is good for once. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Titan. It is uh, actually illustrated and not a photo bash of colonial marines or isolation mm -hmm. elements. And it's really solid. We get to see these red neomorphs, which is, uh, that's another aspect about them in the book is because of some element in the earth that's the common ETF. there. It's, yeah, it um, affects their pigmentation and they are red neomorphs. I will say though, I don't think Olivia should be on the cover. <laughs> that, that, that was another question I was going to ask you guys. Obviously, the, the cover makes it look like Zula and Olivia is going to be a big part of the book zula has a prominent role but she's never planet side in the book which is perfect considering how old she ought to be yeah in this setting you know she's on the ship she's all good were you guys happy with the way those two characters were handled i like zula better in the novels than in the comic books i actually like alien prototype for how they develop her so in that sense yes i thought she did really well olivia is not given quite enough to do but it's at least something it's you know so we have that continuity from echo to fireteam elite here's something kind of in the middle i don't know but again you have olivia's ship and and you have may and they never have a conversation about olivia's sister yeah that would have been very very relevant yeah yeah i'm still like what happened to her sister because that's yeah that's right for exploration right there yep. as well as it's kind of funny in the uh the audiobook they had olivia as british which i don't know oh, if, oh. you guys listened to that at all but it was uh, it was 
I was like, oh, she's British now. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say I picked up on that one myself. At least this, she sounded British to me. But yeah, I, I do feel, and I've seen that comment online. Like it feels like Olivia was sidelined a bit because you have her here and it's kind of the same in Fireteam Elite, right? It's like, she's here. Can we explore her a little bit? Because we've yeah. like, because there was such an interesting adventure with her in yeah. Echo and I want to see more of her life. Like we've seen so much explored with Amanda and Zula. It's like, it was more Olivia. Like we'd like to see yeah. more of her. I, I kind of... Again, because I, at the end of the day, I really like the characters that we got in the book anyway. You know, I really loved May to the point where it's like, okay, I can't quite complain that Zula wasn't in it as much, but Olivia is one that I really do want to see explored. You know, Echo is a book that I don't think gets enough credit and enough love. And Olivia in particular is a character who I don't think gets enough credit and enough love. And, and because of Brian Wood being a fucking sexual predator, we didn't get that comic series del- delving into her more. And we also never got those animated shorts that were going to explore Olivia. So I feel like she's a character ripe for exploration, a brilliant character that's ripe for exploration, that we just keep... She's just there on the edge of everything else. And I'm like... Argh. Come on, please. Let's explore her. I want. I want to see how she gets saved. And while we're at it, let's throw in Hoop. Can we rescue Hoop? Hoop. <laughs> Everyone's uh. getting rescued now. Apparently, nobody dies. It's one of those universes. All of a sudden, no. Hoop. Hoop's dead. Hoop's a desiccated corpse somewhere, uh, <laughs> drifting through space. I still have hope. We'll see Hoop again somehow. Hey, if Amanda Ripley's still alive, I mean, come on. There's got to be somewhere. Maybe Hoop <laughs> picks up Olivia. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm. I'm, yeah. I'm up for that. But it's who rescues enough. Hoop? Hoop was stranded himself. <laughs> That's right. So for me, this is the sequel to Intercryptus. We just skip yeah, right to this. That's fair. That is absolutely mm. fair. We can just ignore Colony War. Even though Colony War was literally about her finding out what happened to her sister. But does she? Do you really know who Cher is as a character, even after you finish it? It's not Cher, it's Cher. Yeah. I have to say that. I was being facetious. It's a nothing <laughs> character. And then it complicates things. That whole book is nothing. Let's be honest. But we're not talking Colony War. Come on. <laughs> so is is there any particular elements on Inferno's Fall that anybody wants to bring up? Or are you all store are you all bullet pointed, talked out? I feel real good about it. Yeah. I think I think it's a great book. I still stand by my eight out of ten. And I hope that we actually see some sort of a sequel. Would you like Philippa back? Oh, yeah. I think she, I really, I think the pairing of the two authors was really, really interesting. Clara brings so much knowledge and so much love, but I really feel Philippa's voice comes through with these characters. Uh-huh. It's just such interesting interactions. And I don't know. I, I feel really good about this. Uh, I said that already. This is a book that I like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I could potentially bump it up more depending on how enemy of my enemy plays out or, or whether there's the elements that kind of take me back in the book are addressed. You know, it might be yeah. a case of that, but you know, in general, I fucking, I really do love it. I do think Philippa, her actual, you know, her handling of the characters, the, the, the physical act of writing the prose and the way they, uh, way she did it. I would quite happily see her come back and take on another one. Yeah. And, and obviously there is a lot of Clara in this. If you know Clara, you can feel so much of her and her yeah. interests as you go in through there. So yeah, it, it was it was a fun, it was a fun pairing and a very strong, very solid book. Yes. Just quick though, I don't know how connected these novels really are gonna be. 
Because yeah. when we talked to Philippa, she thought that they were going to be using Davis. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, he's dead. Well, he, okay. So he was kind of present with his subroutine, right? He was. It was kind of like Superman's father in the Fortress of Solitude kind <laughs> of thing, right? Where it's just, this is my programmed memory to guide you. If you imagine everything that happened here had been Davis instead of May, it just would have been so much less interesting because what she brings as this outsider and this this sort of awkward character exploring really opens things up. If it had been Davis, it would have been who's going to tell us what's happening because he would already have known all the characters would know. So I think it was actually a gift to them to have to create a new character. That's fair. Like I said, you know, May was brilliant. I loved her. I think she thought she was fascinating. And I'm sorry for bringing up Colony War again, oh. but the way Colony <laughs> War ended, it was Chris or Chad searching for Zula. And now we just have Zula. So is is there not enough editorial consistency going off here? It's is like, that, is well, that did he find her? Like, what what is happening with Chad? What is, did he ever find a cure for Amanda? Like, what happened with that? And so, yeah, if it's a trilogy, it's like, even with our problems with Colony War, and maybe we should just forget it. It's like, I want to see what happened with those plot threads. The thing that makes it a trilogy for me is that there's an alien RPG supplement in these three books. Right. Thanks for bringing that up because that is actually a really cool feature because in both Colony War and this, it takes place a little bit after the events of the book, but you can see visual representations of prominent locations from the book. And this is something we saw start with uh, in Charybdis, right? Where it showed the data storage facility. But Alex included a, a little layout, yeah. Yeah, like a blueprint-esque illustration kind of thing. And so it's really cool to have that scenario like, okay, you've read these characters. Now you get to be your own character and go through what happened after this. I haven't read through the RPG scenarios yet. I'm going to, uh, but I just kind of skimmed them and and looked at the setup and uh, some of the plot points as well as the layout of the facilities that they show. And it's cool because it adds that extra element to your experience with the location of the book, right? Like often we're left up to our imaginations on how these places look. So to get a bit of context for that, it's really nice. Christian, have you played them? I, I, I haven't played these adventures. I was going to say, though, Garblag Games on YouTube did an actual play of the one from Colony War that is way more satisfying and fun than that novel. So everyone <laughs> should go check that out. I'm, I'm hoping we'll get on. I haven't played them either yet, but with my game mother, you know, Chevy, if you listen to the podcast or any of the other bits, my buddy Chevy, you know, he's waiting for his copy to arrive and we're going to start playing through the new one. Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Nice. Then after that, we'll move on to these, um, the book ones, which I'm quite looking forward to. Right. Shall we wrap up then, gentlemen? So good book. Go buy it. You don't need to read Colony War. But then again, if you're listening to this, I hope you've already fucking read it. <laughs> let, let us know how you're feeling about Colony War. No, not Colony. Fuck his sake. Let us know how you're <laughs> feeling about Inferno's Fall down in the comment section below if you're watching on YouTube or the social post, wherever. You know, you know where you are. Let us know if you agree with us or, or disagree with us or whatever. We always love to hear back from folk. Christian, do you want to shout out Perfect Organism or any of your own projects? Sure. I'm, I'm a co-host on Perfect Organism. You can find us on all the podcast collector thingamoosies or go to perfectorganism.com. We've got some fun things in store. And other than that, I just thank you guys for, for uh, bringing me on. I love reading the books and I love talking about them. Damn right. And thank you for joining us. Glad we could have you the whole time this time. Yeah. <laughs> Curse the corporation for cutting me off last time. <laughs>
If you'd like to find us, evpgalaxy.net, where we have discussion boards, as well as editorials, interviews, a whole bunch of stuff related to these franchises, which we love. And we're also on all the major socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. If you just search AVP Galaxy or Alien vs. Predator Galaxy, you're sure to find us. And you can also find us in podcast form on most major podcast channels. You can find me personally on Twitter at underscore Corporal Hicks. And that's all Alien, Stargate, Predator, Halo. You know, all my nerdy bollocks that I'm into. And if you'd like to follow me personally, it's at RidgeTop21 on both Twitter and Instagram. How about you, Kristen, you got a personal one? It's it's uh, at Propping Up the Mythos on Instagram and at Prop Up the Mythos on Twitter because the handle was too short. It should be all about the Necronomicon, but Twitter in particular seems to be all about aliens. So, Well, thank you, everybody, for listening or watching. This has been Corporal Hicks. RidgeTop. And RetroGuard. <laughs> Signing off. <laughs>